You're listening to the Vineyard Milwaukee podcast. For more information about Vineyard Milwaukee, go to vineyardmilwaukee.com. Now here's our podcast. So I'm curious, when any of you were little, did you ever try to run away from home? Or actually run away from home? Or threaten to run away from home? Yeah. So my son Caleb was notorious for this, my oldest, who's 20 now. But at a very early age, he would often let us know that we were horrible parents and he was running away. And I remember one particular time this happened. He had got in trouble for something. I don't remember what it was. And he storms off to his room. And he was probably about five or six years old. And the next thing I noticed had uh, just his little, he has his own little carry-on suitcase. And he had packed his little carry-on suitcase and was very, like, dramatically, like, dragging it, you know, slowly to the door, glaring at us. And he gets all the way to the door, and Dave, Dave and I are stifling this laughter because it was just hilarious. Like, what did he pack in his little suitcase? Where was he going to go? I mean, he had run away before. The furthest he had gotten is, like, the next-door neighbor's house, like, hiding behind it or whatever. So we weren't terribly worried. But he had never packed a suitcase before. So we're, I'm, I'm looking at him, Dave's across the room, we look at Caleb, and he sees that we are holding back smiles, and somehow collectively none of us could hold it in. All three of us burst out laughing, and we're all just laughing at the moment, which of course broke the tension, and we were able to talk to Caleb about his little wounded heart for whatever had happened, and we were like, what did you pack in your suitcase anyway? And he unzips it, and there's like a teddy bear in there, and like a book, and I don't even remember. I was like, not sure how these things are going to help you in the wild, but um, needless to say, you know, he, he never got very far and was running away. But if you haven't ever tried to run away from home as a kid, um, have you ever tried to run away from God? Like, literally, like, try to escape the presence of God. I have probably more than once, but as I was working on this, I remembered a particular season in my life that I literally consciously tried to, like, like escape God. I was, I was really hurt and angry, and I, my typical response when I'm feeling really hurt, especially by someone I'm close to, like someone who has shown an ability to take care of me, like my husband or best friend or my parent. Um, when I'm hurt or let down, I tend to have a very sort of passive-aggressive response and just kind of say, well, I don't need you anyway, and I'm just going to take care of myself. And so this was my posture toward God. Um, It was years ago, probably about 15 years ago now, Um, but my daughter, Abigail at the time, we were in the throes of a lot of medical problems with her, and she was having seizures on a daily basis, and so we were in addition to seeking lots of medical assistance, we were also praying a lot for her. And we had a lot of people praying for her, pastors at her church, things like this. I even sought out Francis McNutt, which if you're not familiar who he is, he's, um, he's passed away now, but he's, he's the author of probably the most well-known, highly sold, well-respected book on the subject of healing. And I actually found him. He actually prayed for Abigail in person and had a prophetic word for her. We got some prophetic words. Long story short, we had been in the hospital to attempt something called the ketogenic diet, and Abigail got really, she got the rotavirus while she was in the hospital, got really sick. 
but mysteriously, when we came out of the hospital, her seizures completely stopped. They just stopped. And she was having them on a daily basis. Well, we found out later, through talking to other neurologists years later, that was likely due to severe hydration. Between the special diet and the rotavirus, she got really dehydrated, and that can suppress seizures. So that's probably what actually happened. But at the time, through all the prayer saturation, the prophetic words, it just seemed like divine healing. We had no other explanation. And it, it wasn't just all in our heads. Like, as we're sharing this, uh, you know, leaders and pastors at our church are also believing this to be true. We even um, talked to our pediatrician who happened to go to our church to talk about potentially weaning her off her meds. Um, and he sat in his office and prayed with us, and we came to the decision that this seemed like a move of God, and we were going to do this. And, of course, you can probably guess the end of the story. Um, she was not supernaturally healed. As I said, it was likely the dehydration, and her seizures did slowly start coming back. And I remember when it first started happening, I was almost in denial about it, and then I thought, no, they've, they've come back funny how it comes back to you when you just go back to the story. But I remember being so angry at God, not just from the pain I was suffering from just the ongoing struggle, but I felt tricked. I felt like set up. I remember Dave saying, I feel like we're part of some kind of cosmic joke, like the, just the timing of everything. And it just felt like, like God was against us. And so I remember getting, uh, I was so hurt. I was just like, well, fine. I don't need you then, right? So I tried this passive-aggressive maneuver. It lasted about five days. But I, I just was refusing to talk to God, to pray, to even try, try not to think about him. I remember going to a movie by myself in the middle of the day. Like, just, I'm going just to go to a movie because I just was trying to distract myself from, from giving God any of my time or attention. And I wouldn't go to small group. I was just doing everything to avoid, avoid God. And I remember waking up one morning, and I just felt God's spirit in the room. I just felt him in present, and I just started crying, and I just was like, I'm so mad at you. I said, I feel like I'm the mud on the bottom of your shoe, but I need you. I, I cannot face this without you. I, I can't even get out of this bed and, and do the next thing without you, and so my passive-aggressive stint ended, <laughs> and I, God, of course, picked me back up, and we journeyed on. And so maybe that's been an experience you've had. Um, what, are, what are some of the reasons that we try to flee from God? Sometimes it's hurt, and confusion, and anger, like my story. Sometimes we're you know, intentionally in a sinful, choosing a, some kind of sinful lifestyle or we're doing something we know is not right, and so we're just, we're trying to compartmentalize it. We're trying to avoid it, but we tend to try to flee from God. Um, sometimes it's a blend of all these kind of motivations. Maybe God's asked us to do something we don't want to do. Maybe it's just like, I know God's asked me to do this thing, but I'm resisting it. And so this is what we're going to talk about today, and, and today and over the next several weeks, we're going to kind of do a deep dive into the book of Jonah. 
And my guess is that everyone in this room, whether you grew up in church or not, has heard of the story of Jonah. Um, if you don't know who he is, he's a prophet who tried to run away from God. God asked him to do something, and he didn't want to do it, and so he tries to flee from God's presence. And so, curious, has, has anyone not heard of the story of Jonah and the whale? Some of the Bible nerds out there are going, it's not a whale, Rebecca, it's a big fish. Yes, I know. <laughs> but if you, if you go on Amazon right now, you'll see dozens of stories in children's literature calling it Jonah and the whale. This has become the popular story, popular VeggieTale cartoons. I even saw like a big production in Pennsylvania, like a big dramatic musical on Jonah and the Whale. And so it it's makes for great children's literature. But the truth is this very little book of the Bible is packed full of wisdom and revelation about humanity, about the people of God, and going into exile and God's restoration. It's really a really almost like a summary of the entire Bible in this few little books. And so as we kind of dive into this, um, you know, I really think that God has something very personal he wants to say to our community through this. And if you're wondering why I chose this little book, it actually, I felt like God told me to. I was actually praying what like the next sermon series should be. And two days in a row, I just heard the Lord say Nineveh. <laughs> like, what, what are you trying to say here? And then I had a dream that I was talking to somebody, uh, some theologian I know, and I said, tell me all about the book of Jonah. So after like these two words in this dream, I thought, I think God has something for us here. So as I've been unpacking it, I've just discovered it is a wealth of revelation from the Lord. And so I do think he has something personal for you and for our community through this. And so today, all I'm going to do is open the scene of Jonah just going to introduce the story of the prophet who's trying to run away from God, and we're going to look at how God responds. Oh, that was interesting. Because <laughs> sometimes when it feels like God is against us and we're being eaten alive, it's actually God's mercy at work. And so that's what we're going to take a look at today. And as we unpack the book of Jonah, I want to invite you to... Uh, Take the risk of looking at this like you're looking in a mirror. Like, what is God maybe saying to you? As we talk about Jonah, let Jonah be a reflection of yourself, okay? So let's just read. We're going to read the entire first chapter together. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to see who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? 
He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, like I said, if you, if you only know, like, the cartoon version of the story, you aren't familiar with Jonah. Like I said, he was a prophet, not necessarily a good one. He only shows up one more time before the story. Um, in 2 Kings, where he prophesies to a king, Jeroboam, and then his prophecy was later overturned by another prophet. And so we don't know a ton about him, but in the weeks to come, we'll kind of talk about his character and what we're learning about him. But either way, we kind of discover that he's kind of an anti-hero. He's kind of the opposite of what you'd expect a prophet of God to be like. And so he didn't want to go to Nineveh because Nineveh were his enemies. They were the enemies of the Israelites, and he did not want God to have mercy on them. He knew if he went there that if they repented, God would have mercy on them, and he would rather God take them out. And so, in other words, he didn't want to obey God, so he ran. It says, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And so it's kind of funny right out of the gate. Because it says later in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So he identifies himself as one who worships the God who made the sea. And yet he chooses to escape from God by boarding a ship and going on the sea. Not very, not very good idea. And so I'm curious, have you ever said you believe something, but your behavior would say otherwise? I mean, he says, I believe that God is the God of the sea, but I think I can escape him by going on the sea. So his behavior is in contradiction with what he says he actually, actually believes. I think this is true for all of us, isn't it? You know, we say, I, I know that I'm a son or daughter of the king of the universe, but I tend to live in a scarcity mentality with my money. I think I have to cling to it. I'm afraid to be generous with it. Or I believe that God will meet the desires of my heart, that he says he'll meet the desires of my heart. But I think that I have to get my needs met my own way. Through pornography or dating outside the faith or any, any way I need to get my desires met, even though God says he will fill every need I have. And so be, Jonah's behavior is telling us something about our divided hearts. So he jumps on a, chip, a ship and heads toward Tarshish. What is Tarshish? Where is this? Why is this important? Why is this mentioned a few times? Well, I can't unpack this fully in the whole biblical history behind it, but in a nutshell, the land of Tarshish or the ships of Tarshish 
um, have two main associations all through the Old Testament. It's an exotic, distant nation, and it's a place that has things like gold and precious gems, and even later we find out like apes and peacocks and just really beautiful, fascinating things. And so in many ways, no one actually knows exactly where it is. But what we are beginning to surmise is that it is a pseudo-Eden that appears all through the Old Testament. And it appears as a place, a source of wealth and resources where people attempt to create their own version of Eden, which then subjects them to judgment. So essentially, the author of Jonah is trying to show us that Jonah is wanting to flee from God and search for Eden on his own terms. And this is often the motivation, isn't it? When we take matters into our own hands, we become the rulers of our own lives. We try to get our own needs met, both personally and communally and as a people. We're trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. We're trying to create our own little versions of Eden our way. We want peace. We want tranquility. We want joy and freedom. And we want peacocks and apes and gold and beautiful things, right? We want the desires of our heart met. In many ways, all the fighting between political parties is all of our attempts. We think some politician or some political party is going to, you know, restore some idea of Eden in our country, right? It doesn't work, though, does it? I mean, when we try to run our own lives, when we try to create our own Eden, or, or when we as a people think that a politician or political party is going to restore our country to anything that resembles Eden, historically, when we try to do this on our own or when countries try to do it, our attempts to acquire and create Eden has typically led to corruption and bloodshed. And this is what's happened historically in the Bible, and this is what continues to happen. When humanity tries to get back to their garden on their own terms. And so our desire for Eden isn't misguided. I mean, we were created for Eden. So our longing for it, our desire for it is right. It's how we try to get there on our own terms, on our own way, in our timing. And so it's when we try to create Eden in our lives, in our ways, apart from God, out of his mercy and profound love for us, he will come after us. It says in verse 4, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Have you ever been in a violent storm? I don't know if I've been in a really violent storm, but when I was writing this, I remember one time my college friends and I were driving from Boston to Ohio, and we stopped in Niagara Falls to do like an overnight Niagara Falls, and a huge storm came. And you could not see anything in front of you. I mean, the rain was coming down so hard, and we're right by Niagara Falls, which I don't know how that impacts the weather. But either way, I thought we were going to die. It was very scary. Um, and so violent storms are intense, right? Like real violent storms, like actually create a sense in your life, like a life or death situation, intensity. But what about like not an actual physical storm? But have you experienced, like, a personal storm, like, in your life, <laughs> where it just feels like the rug's been pulled out from under you, and it feels like everything you know is crumbling around you, that the ship you're on is about to crumble and break up? I have. 
And I know, as I've shared in my story earlier, when you're in that, it can feel like God's against you. It can feel like everything's coming against you. But what if God's mercy is actually at work? What if God's mercy is at work in that storm? What if the storm is even a vehicle to save you? So what happens to Jonah? Well, the story says the sailors threw him into the sea, which was actually his suggestion, which we'll get to later. It says in verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And we're going to talk in a couple weeks about what happens in the belly of that fish, which is very significant. But today, as we're kind of wrapping up, I just want to wrap up knowing that Jonah in the belly of the fish is in a place of suffering and hardship for a while. Within the Hebrew Bible, uh, when they use the phrase like the time span of three days and three nights or on the third day, it appears many times. It's actually a phrase that appears and it's used to describe a time of testing or danger or nearness to death. And it's also used to describe a time of like an ominous journey. And so, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with this phrase. If you're familiar with the New Testament, that phrase should be lighting up for you. Uh, It says in Matthew 12, Jesus was talking to some Pharisees and teachers of the law. They said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. We're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come, but who is the greater? Who's the greater than Jonah is here? It's Jesus. And we have the absolute privilege of reading the book of Jonah and all of the Old Testament from the vantage point of knowing the end of the story, of what it's pointing to, what it's trying to alert us to. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to and preparing the way for Jesus. And all the writers of the New Testament would have been formed and shaped by the Hebrew scriptures, just like Jonah, including Jesus. And so as we'll see, Jonah is in a long line of leaders and prophets that failed to do what only Jesus could do. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he says, the gospel authors are saying that what we saw happen with Jesus is exactly the way that this story works. When humans try to create Eden and their own blessing and eternal life by their own power, it creates systems of violence and broken relationships. The only way out of this is for someone to come and go through the veil of death on our behalf and out the other side, and Jonah is an inverted portrait of the positive portrait of the kind of figure we really need. So it's because we do have a perfect prophet, Jesus, who did go through the veil of death on our behalf, and out the other side, that rebirth can be worked into us. And often our experiences of these storms and these near drownings and sufferings and the belly of sea creatures is the crucible of this regeneration and of our healing and of our salvation. This is places where Eden is being formed into our being. And this is possible because of what Jesus has done. Now, I'm guessing that some of you may be left with questions right now, like, does this mean that God sends all the storms into my life? 
that he's the author of every storm or hard thing that's happening? Or what if I'm not actively running away from God? I'm not uh, in a place of rebellion or disobedience or even mad at God, but I'm still being swallowed up by a sea creature. There are times in our lives where we are in rebellion or we're in a place of apathy. We need to be woken up from our stupor. And in God's mercy, he will give us over to the consequences of our rebellion or wake us up. And there are times, like I said, we're walking in obedience and suffering comes into our lives just because we live in a fallen and broken world. And that's just part of the human experience right now. But either way, God's love and mercy is still active in using that place of suffering, using our space in the belly of that sea creature to serve his purposes of redeeming and restoring us. So our response of surrender to his way and his purposes are still the same. He is still the only way to Eden. We are never done being refined. He he is our return to Eden. So today, as we close our time together, as we move into a time of communion, I just want to read, I want to close by reading part of Psalm 139 for you. Starting with verse 7, it says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So depending on what's going on in your life, this can feel like really good news or it can feel a bit uncomfortable. If you're living a divided life, trying to compartmentalize parts of your life, thinking you can keep things hidden from God, you're realizing, I can't. There's nowhere I can go. But if you're currently drowning in a storm, knowing that the Spirit of God is with you, that his right hand, which is a term used for his power, is holding you fast. This is really good news. And as I said, either way, this is really good news. The fact that we cannot flee from the love of God, from the spirit of God, from the presence and power of God is really good news for us. Because no matter where you find yourself today, God's purposes for you are for you. They're for your salvation, which is another word for your healing. He's for the redemption of your whole being. So I want to invite those of you who are in a belly of a sea monster today that as after we take communion and move into a time of worship, to come get prayer. Why you're in the belly is, is, is not as important than how God wants to meet you there. He's in that belly with you. And so we want to come alongside of you and join the Spirit of God in praying for that redemptive, restoring, saving work for you as you're facing this. Because you're not alone. And so we come around you as intercessors, as physical presence of God's spirit, uh, praying for you and with you and alongside of you and ministering to you in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So why don't we stand and take communion together? And even if that specific word doesn't uh, speak to you, if anything is speaking to you today, 
we invite you to come receive prayer today for whatever's going on. Um, we had a word this morning in our prayer time of kind of a picture of water kind of being drawn up, almost like collected and drawn up through something and released. And there was a sense of, of that the Lord is the one that does the work. <laughs> it's his spirit. When we get pictures of water, it's often the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that will come down into the depths, as we'll see in the story, and pull us out. And so that's what we're praying for this morning, that God would come out of his love and his mercy and his power and meet us in whatever we're dealing with, whatever's happening in our crucible of suffering. Thanks for listening to the Vineyard Milwaukee podcast. For more information, go to vineyardmilwaukee.com.